0: Hi, this is Alan Shartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Claudia Kunin, a certified grief counselor and certified planetologist. Claudia specializes in developing coping and processing strategies to help families and individuals through life's most challenging transitions. Claudia is the author of two books, Shattered by Grief, Picking Up the Pieces to Become Whole Again, and she has a new book, being released July 1st, called The Creative Toolkit. You can find out more about Claudia Kunin and her work at the project.com. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you, Alan. Let me start by asking you, what is grief?
1: So grief is the holistic reaction to loss. Um, usually it's associated with the death of someone close. And what I mean by holistic is that it affects us on many different levels at the same time. We're affected emotionally, obviously. That's the most obvious one. We're affected cognitively, psychologically, spiritually, and also in our perception of our relationships and our community.
0: Well, so is it always the same for everybody?
1: No, it it is not. There are certainly common themes and many people will experience similar reactions. But our grief and our reactions to loss are very much affected by our attachment to the person that's gone or to the situation that we might be grieving. And also our culture, our family history, the way that we're uh, used to expressing emotion, all those things affect how we grieve.
0: Huh. Let me ask you a question. This is personal. What if you don't grieve, uh, you know, when you've experienced loss? What does it say about you?
1: Well, you know, many people might suppress their grief, and they may feel, "Oh, I'm not really grieving," and then it might come up later, or they may do things to distract themselves, like keeping really busy. There are other people who are not having a very strong reaction, and they might think, "Oh, I'm not grieving," and that may be because the death was expected. Or, um, for instance, I have a woman that I worked with for a little while, whose husband was over was almost a hundred years old when he died, and. He had had a very long life. He was actually a well-known artist. And I went to see her and she said, I think there's something wrong with me. I'm not feeling like I'm grieving. And I asked her what she meant. She said, well, she's not crying a lot but she feels that he had a very full life. She, of course, misses him and she's lonely for him, but she didn't, wasn't experiencing what she expected in terms of her grief reaction. So, so I'm not yeah. sure that it's, that it's true that people don't grieve. If you cared about somebody or something, then you will experience grief, but you're going to experience in different ways.
0: So how did you, Claudia Kunin, become an expert in grief? I mean, what makes you a, an expert?
1: Well, first, I experienced a devastating loss. In 2005, my husband died suddenly. And during that process of, of trying to pick myself up in, in what felt like the shattered shattered pieces of my life, I went to what I know personally to do, which is creative process. And while I was doing that, I thought maybe I might be able to find a way to help other people through my own unique perspective. So I decided that I wanted to become a grief counselor, but I really didn't know how. And I also knew that I had only experienced kind of a very small slice of what grief feels like, because I had experienced a sudden death. So I wanted to learn more. So I went back to school and I read a lot of books and I studied a lot with a lot of different people so that I could expand my knowledge of all the different ways that people grieve. So I got a master's in transpersonal psychology, which was not a grief program, but it was a holistic view of psychology. So I put every class sort of through the lens of how to become whole again after grief. And then I went to Brooklyn College to um, an advanced grief counseling certificate program and learned a lot about thanatology there. And then I'm also certified through a a national organization, the Association of Deaf Education and Counseling. And that is primarily a group that supports counselors and also supports research into the field of thanatology, which is the study of death, dying and bereavement. So I attend their conferences almost every year, and I usually am presenting there, and I learn a lot from my colleagues and from experts in the field.
0: First of all, I want to go back to your husband. How old was he when he died? It was four days after his 50th birthday. So in other words, he was a fairly young man, right? Does, yes. Does, does age have anything to do with levels of grief?
1: Well, I think it does. I think, you know, when somebody, as I mentioned before, when somebody is elderly, my own father died in January, and I... I'm sad about that, but I'm also a little relieved that the quality of life that he had in the last couple of years was not particularly good. What he wasn't engaged in in the things that he loved. So I'm not grieving that way uh, as hard in any way that I I was when my husband died. Suddenly that was so totally unexpected. And it really felt like in the middle of our lives, in the middle of raising our children, that was just not supposed to happen and it felt very unfair. So I was actually quite angry um, for a while.
0: We've all heard about Kula Ross and the stages of grief. What do you think of that?
1: I think that um, Elizabeth Kula Ross is sort of the grandmother of talking about grief. She was the one that um, opened up the conversation about dying and said, you know, we really need to be able to talk to people about it. Because at the time when she was doing her research in the late 50s and early 60s, it was generally the thought in medical professions that you don't tell the person that they're dying, that that would be a bad thing. So people were terminally ill, and they could tell that they were, they could feel it, but nobody was do- was talking to them about it. So there was a lot of, of uh, sort of basic cover-up kind of a way of, of approaching it. And she opened that up. So she she started, started people talking in realistic ways to people who were dying and to people who were grieving. The problem with Kubler-Ross's stages is that it's pretty much the only thing that the general population knows, and it's pretty much the only thing that's taught in therapy programs and in medical professionals when they're in their training. And it is a 50-year-old model, and even though Kubler-Ross herself did not prescribe it as the way to grieve, in fact, her model was was based on how people were dying, the things that they were experiencing when they were dying, and then it was later added on to bereavement, it's been misinterpreted as if this is the way to do it. It goes in stages, you go through denial, bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance, and then you're done. And that is totally untrue. So um, one of the reasons that I wrote my new book is because I think that other professionals and also volunteers who are working with dying people and other people, people who are maybe starting peer support groups, need to know more about the more current research models in grief. And so the first part of my book is that. It's an it's a overview of thanatology, of grief, of attachment theory, and several different models that are, are really useful and beneficial today. So
0: here we sit in the middle of probably the worst, Health crisis that this country has ever seen. First of all, do you agree with that? Absolutely. And your work, of course, is incredibly important because if one person dies and you grieve, but we're having people dropping dead all over the place to the point where we're putting them in halls, we're putting them in trucks outside hospitals. Has that affected the way in which people are grieving?
1: Absolutely, it does. Two things. First of all, if you are already grieving in this time of coronavirus, grief often has an isolating quality to it, where you people sort of hunker down inside their emotions and they, they're trying to grapple with all of those feelings. So they kind of feel cut off from other people to begin with. And now we're all cut off from each other. We're, we're told to practice this thing that everybody's calling social distancing, which by the way, I really don't like that term because we do need to be physically distant, but we definitely need to remain socially connected. And I think we're also we're also tuned into this collective grief that's everywhere. A lot of my clients say to me that they're feeling very alarmed, and they find themselves watching the news all the time, and and I do too in some ways, and I think that there's this feeling like we're so out of control, we don't know what's happening, and it's so uncertain, we want to find out, you know, has anything changed, do we have any more information, so we kind of find ourselves, you know, going back and looking at the statistics and watching different news programs, and it's very arousing, we get very alarmed by that. Also, everybody is out there walking around with masks, if there are walking around, and people are feeling really anxious. And we're picking that up. And so I really think that we're in this in a time of collective grief as well.
0: How much does our grieving, our level of grief have to do with our own sense of self?
1: I think it has a lot to do with your sense of self. Um, and I think then that leads towards how are you resilient? Because if you have a rather amorphous sense of self, and you feel you're very easily buffeted by the winds of change and by, you know, by uncertainty and anxiety, it's harder for you to, to find a center place where you can kind of be calmer. Um, it's hard It's hard for you to, to um, figure out ways to cope with these feelings that, you're, that are being aroused around you. But if you have a stronger sense of self, and you know that you have coping skills, and you know that you are resilient, you might feel yourself to become agitated and anxious and sort of spinning around, but then you find a way to come back to yourself and find a way to calm yourself down, so that you can can cope in a better way.
0: So to what degree does, you know, social class have to do with grief? Have you thought about that?
1: sort of speaks to what I what I mentioned before. The word culture. Our families uh, grow in, in a culture, in a way of being. You know, whether it's informed by our our spiritual beliefs or our um, ancestry, there there are ways that people handle difficult situations. And I think that you know probably social class feeds into that too. And and of course, if you are on the poor side and you don't have a lot of resources and you you know, have to go to, and bag those groceries and you, you don't have a lot of, of those resilient skills that I mentioned and you don't have a lot of family support at home, perhaps and there's a lot of people at home, perhaps there's a little bit of domestic violence at home. So it makes it, it, makes it really difficult and it, it's harder to find a space within that to grieve when you're coping with all of these other things.
0: We're talking to Claudia Kunin, a creative grief counselor. What makes it creative in your title?
1: I tend to view things in a creative frame. Um, when I was fifteen, I wrote in my diary that I wanted to live my life as creatively as possible. That was my life goal, um, and creativity and creative process could be anything. It could be um, making a collage of, of how you envision your future, but it also could just be that if you make a statement, "Oh, I'm having such a hard time today. I can't. Don't think I can get through the day," and then you think, "Well." If I was on a desert island, I would be doing this. And that's like a creative reframe, you know? So, yeah. so you can also take something really simple and just turn it around in a, in a more creative way. And that's, a, that's a, a different approach. I also, what I also mean by being a creative grief counselor is that um, sometimes talking about your grief is very important, getting the words out. But um, one of my mentors in my, in my um, graduate program said that language is a secondary way of communicating. And at first I was really appalled by that. I was like, oh no, no, we talk to each other, we tell each other stories, that's, that's how we communicate. And she asked me to think about it. And the fact is, is that we communicate how we feel and what we're thinking in a lot of other ways. There are visual cues, body language cues, um, we sense each other's emotions, and that is nonverbal. There's a lot of nonverbal ways of expressing how you feel. And I like to explore those with my clients.
0: So, Claudia Conan, suppose I'm grieving. Suppose I have a terrible loss that I can't get over. Do I hire you and you help me?
1: I would hope so. Um, okay. I, so I also, what will you do okay.
0: if, if I hire you?
1: Well, the first thing I would do is I would I would ask you on the phone if you, if you were to call me. I would ask you on the phone, you know, to tell me a little bit about your situation and what it is that you're grieving. And um, I would listen very carefully to make sure that I was that I feel like I'm the right person, because if you call me and you are also experiencing a lot of other issues that perhaps are um, indicative of of other types of mental illness, I might refer you to someone else because that's not my area of expertise. But if it looks like it's pretty clear that there's grief, um, I might suggest that you can come in and and do one session with me. Um, And in that session, we'll both be able to tell whether it's a good fit. It's really important that you feel very comfortable with me, that you feel like you can open up, that you feel safe. Um, because if you don't feel safe and you don't feel like there's a rapport with me, then then what's why even bother? So what do you um,
0: bring to So what do you bring to it, Claudia, uh, that a conventional psychologist or social worker would?
1: I bring a compassionate presence. No, I think conventional psychologists and social workers probably also bring compassionate presence. Um, but um, my training is, is really in um, wanting to listen and encourage you to explore your own experience to try to be a guide. One model, uh, Dr. Alan Wolfelt, whose organization is called the Center for Loss and Life Transition. Dr. Alan Wolfelt has a view that we should be companions to people who are grieving. So the idea of I'm, I'm, I'm here, I have expertise in the field, but I'm, I'm not an expert in your experience. So I'm here to walk alongside you and to encourage you to ex- explore your own experience. And then of course I have strategies and ideas that you might try, they might work. But I also, if I, if I do offer something creative or, or something that's a little out of the box to my clients, I always tell them that it's offered in the spirit of wanting to help you. And if you don't like it or you don't feel like doing it, that's fine um, because you have to work through your own grief. So I'm there to help you to offer some guidance and also to just sort of sit back and listen.
0: Years and years ago, when I worked at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers, I had a secretary who was deeply in love with her husband, and he died. And she never, ever got over it. I talked to her on the phone, and she would begin to cry. And my question to you is, how common is that, that people can't ever stop grieving in a big way to, so that they can go on with their lives?
1: Huh. You know, on the one hand, I would say grief never ends. I mean, I, I will always grieve, Albie. I always will miss him but I do not grieve in the same way that I did when he first died. So generally speaking, grief has a softening over time. And as you begin to re-engage in life and you begin to develop new interests and even new relationships, generally speaking, you do move in a more positive direction. So it isn't that common for someone to be, be crying and feeling that raw grief all the time yeah. many, many years after a death. Right. That's usually an indicator that there's um, uh, something else going on or or there are. There are complicated gr- grief situations that are also called prolonged grief disorder and there are some new research methods and models to work with that. Personally, you know the, the DSM now has a, a prolonged grief disorder in its um, roster of uh, psychological disorders, which is a bit problematic for most of us general grief counselors because, it, it sort of gives a time frame that if you're still that raw between six months and one year, then there's something wrong. And I don't really think that's true. I think in, in some cases, especially in the case of a sudden death, or a really traumatic death, it probably takes a whole year to even um, cope with the fact that it's happened. So I don't like those artificial timelines. But I also don't know that it's true to say, oh, she hasn't gotten over it, or she's or, or what the other thing that you said, oh, I've never grieved. I think that um, we tend to apply these labels on top of things, and they're not always indicative of the truth.
0: Okay, well, I'm fascinated by what you're saying. And I should just point out that we're talking to Claudia Kunin, who is an expert on brief counseling and who has written extensively on it. I guess I got to want to ask you this. How much does one's individual guilt in life, if one tends to be a guilty person, play in the way in which they grieve?
1: It probably plays a lot. I, I'm, I don't like I don't like guilt very much, <laughs> although it's very common. You know, guilt is one of those um, those really sticky feelings that um, you can't do anything about. You know, because you can talk about, oh, if only I had done this, or if only that had happened, and what if this had happened, and what if the circumstances were different, and and those are all. I think those are all reasonable things to explore, especially in early grief, because those questions do come up. Um, but guilt. Um, usually is 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 associated with helplessness um and if you can see it in that frame then there and you see that there isn't anything that you can do that will change what has happened um hopefully um i'm certainly going to try to help you let go of that guilt
0: well okay do we know in advance i've been married 49 years do we know in advance what our level of grief will be if we lose a partner
1: Probably not. I think I think in off, it, it's often very surprising. I think this woman who was was telling me that she wasn't grieving her husband, of, I think they've been married for 65 years, um, she was surprised by that. Um, but I was able to reassure her that that's totally normal and as long as she's still feeling connected to him and celebrating their relationship, then that's fine. That is the way that she's grieving. Um, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I personally had thought that I would be widowed at some point, but I certainly expected to be well into my 70s before I was... was uh, Widow. So it was a huge surprise. I had no idea how I was going to get through it.
0: Huh. You said sometimes there's something else going on. That caught my attention. I wonder what the something else's can be.
1: Well, there might be some other other um, issues like, you know, attachment issues or um, perhaps, perhaps this is a person who doesn't have a lot of other people in their lives, um, doesn't have any um, personal goals or hobbies or things that that interest them um, and they put all their focus on this one person and they, they sort of don't they don't have that strong sense of self um, if everything is like they, they feel like their life is over because this person is gone now that actually people often feel that way in the beginning they do feel like their life is over because they can't envision how their life might be without this important person Mm-hmm. But one of the ways of getting through grief is to slowly begin to re-engage and to slowly begin to figure out what you would like to be engaged with and what you might want to do with your life. And another way to cope with your grief is to think about what you've learned from that person that you were in a relationship with, how you changed from being in that relationship, and consider the gifts in that and then try to find ways that you can bring that forward into your own life in order to keep them there. I call my my business the Karuna Project because my husband wrote that word on the top of all of his letters. Interesting. So every time I use that word, it's connected to him. But it also means an act of compassion, and that is connected to wanting to help other people.
0: Well, what is Karuna?
1: Karuna is a Sanskrit word that means compassion in action.
0: Huh. So we are at a time now where obviously... People who are dying cannot see their loved ones.
1: Yes, this is really challenging. It's really challenging, and it increases this feeling of, of not being able to grieve properly and not being able to comfort. I mean, people want to be at the bedside of somebody who's dying. They want to be able to hold their hand. They want to be able to kiss them. They want to be able to tell them how they feel and they wanna be able to hear their last words. And when you take that away from them, it's very, very activating and people feel very upset by this. The funeral directors of the country, of our country and probably of the world and the religious leaders and many people in the end of life um, community are seriously talking about this. Um, I'm part of a collective uh, called the Virtual Funeral where people are gathering to discuss ways to help families. And it's pretty much all gone virtual Funeral directors are live streaming funerals. They're trying to make it possible for people to participate. They're developing family gatherings for shivas, for wakes, for um, morning sessions with, you know, where people can attend through Zoom or through other kind of um, virtual ways of of meeting. But it's definitely problematic because not everybody can use the computer in that way.
0: Especially people who are of an older age. Uh, Yeah. Fascinating. So talk to me a little bit more about funerals. You know, my mom did not want a funeral. Mm -hmm. She didn't want it. She was quite an accomplished woman. She got a lot done in her life. People adored her, but she wanted to be buried graveside. She didn't want anybody paying for it. And, um, (laughs) And I've often wondered, and I've heard of that again and again, what is it that people eschew about having a funeral? That affects people who could put a period at the end of a life span, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, well, I think I think this is one of, another one of the challenges because one of the things that um, a funeral service uh, or even a celebration of life, because I, I'm with you, I, I my family typically doesn't really do funerals, but we do like to have celebrations, but any kind of gathering that. Um, Is there to commemorate the person who has died, whether it's a religious service that, you know, a funeral mass or a service in a temple um, or a mosque Uh, for people who where that's comfortable, they need that. And one of the things that that does for the family is it shows that people, other people were affected by this person who's died, having people come. And having people come and and, help and shake your hand or give you a hug and say, oh, he was such a wonderful person. Oh, she meant so much to me. I remember when she did this, that was so meaningful. That really helps the family. So these rituals, they provide a level of support and comfort to the family. And so in or- how to create that in a virtual world is a real, is another really big challenge.
0: It's interesting that the person who has departed, may have a great deal to do with the sense of grief that the people they left, I don't know if you're following me on this, have. In other words, you counsel people on their grief. But what happened previous to the person dying has a great deal to do with what we call grief or how we experience it.
1: Yeah, and that can be surprising too, because maybe maybe the person who died was not nice. Maybe there was a really difficult relationship. Maybe they were violent or demeaning, or maybe you were divorced, and now they're they're dead, and you have to and you you're grieving that. Um, it's complicated sometimes, but I think you still have the right to explore your grief and to express it, um, and uh, in in whatever shape and form it might take.
0: No matter what, I think my mother, who, as I've said so many times, was so accomplished, I think she felt if she had a funeral, it wouldn't be enough. You know to celebrate <laughs> what she had accomplished. I've seen that before. What do you think? Everybody has their own view. <laughs> I mean, we anyway.
1: we had a celebr we had a celebration of life for Albie. That's I didn't want to have a funeral. Um, I didn't even want to have anything in the funeral home. But uh, I was tipped off that his Catholic family really needed that, so we did. We did have that for them. Um, we had a celebration where we had all the music that he loved. We had uh, words. Um, poetry that we both loved. We had food and a huge gathering. Over 400 people came. And um, I have a friend who's a playwright and uh, she scripted the ceremony for us. And I think this is actually can feed into the idea of virtual celebrations because one way that it really can work well is if it is organized well. Um, So you have invited people to come and to speak and they, they want to share stories of the person who's gone. But if you have it sort of arranged ahead of time, who's going when, and maybe have it interspersed with music or with um, words of comfort by specific people, it'll end up feeling more meaningful for everybody in that virtual setting. You know,
0: you mentioned your husband's family's religion was Catholic, is that right? Yes. And you?
1: I'm culturally Jewish.
0: Culturally Jewish, got it. Believe me, I can understand that one.
1: So (laughs) My father was born in Germany, so um, his family were... Atheists, but they were Jews, and they um, left Germany in 1939.
0: So how much does religion count in the way in which we grieve?
1: Well, it depends on each person. But if a a family is, um, or a person is is religious and connected to their faith, then their faith might provide them with, um, you know, with methods to grieve, with uh, religious support from their clergy. Um, It might provide them with Uh, parables and adages that they can find in their religious texts. So it can help. But there's also something else that happens often. And this does happen with people who are deeply religious. Sometimes people have a crisis of faith when they lose somebody. Um, They begin to question their Mm. faith because that's sort of why me. I mean, when I worked in the hospice, um, we had a woman who was a deeply religious, very Catholic Irish woman. And she was a person who went to the church every day. She arranged the flowers. She was very closely connected with her church. And when her husband died, Again, I think they've been married for over 60 years. She suddenly stopped going to church, and she had never, ever done that in her life. And it was alarming to her, but she couldn't bring herself to go back for a long time. After several months, she finally went back. But she really felt very angry at God for taking her, her husband, and she just didn't mm. want to walk into church. It's very individual.
0: Right, except that some funeral cultures are very different from others. I've gone to many Catholic masses for people who've passed. I'm, as you say, culturally Jewish. And I'm always surprised about how little is about the person who's died. Now, maybe that's just the ones I went to, but it seems to me that there are differences in the way, way in which different religions react to death.
1: I think there's different different ways in which the services are structured. And when you attend a Catholic funeral, it is almost always a Catholic mass. So they're actually doing their regular mass, and then they're tacking on the funeral pieces. I know I, when my when my father-in-law's uh, funeral mass happened. That was my first Catholic mass of uh, of a funeral nature, and and um, I was also surprised by the same thing. Um, there didn't seem to be as much, and, and um, our family members wanted to read certain things, and they were restricted in terms of what they could read. The priest told them they could read this or that, but not that. So. Um, but that you know everybody's different and, and
0: each... so what could they do Wait, let me interrupt because I'm so fascinated by that. what could they do or not do according to Um,
1: to the I remember priest? that my, there were certain religious texts that they could read and there were um, there was a poem that my brother-in-law wanted to read, but he wasn't allowed to because it wasn't within that framework they were they had a, actually had a list of things that you could choose from but they also allowed um, us to put music in um, uh-huh. music of our own choice and I was invited to sing a, sing a folk song so I did. So that was
0: part of it. We, of course, are talking to Claudia Kunin, a creative grief counselor and certified thanatologist. Okay, so Claudia, my best friend died. He died and I was working hard at the radio station, which I run and I just couldn't get away. I had him on the radio twice for hour long interviews. But he died, and his service was way out in Massachusetts on the islands, and I didn't go. And I felt a little guilty at the time. I thought I had celebrated him on the radio. Nevertheless, I've felt a little guilty about that ever since. What do you make of that?
1: I think, you know, that's a normal feeling. I think that you can do something about that if you like. You could, um, if you feel really strong, really strong guilt, and you wish that you had been there, or you wish that you could tell him that you wanted to be there... You could write him a letter, and you know, let him know how you feel. Well, he's dead. No, well, that's true, it? but you, you I, 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 if that's up to you—if yeah. you want to believe that he'll get it, then you—you know—you could. This is something that you do for yourself. You can—you can talk to him. I mean, I think that it's very common for people to talk to the people who are dead. I do it all the time. I did it. Um, many people do. Yes, I, you did, I did not. It with,
0: I did it with my you father. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I remember. So, did good, you day. did you question yeah. whether he heard you, or you just did it because it felt right?
0: No, I did it because it felt right, quite, right. quite strong. You were are right about that. So, Claudia, what do we know in terms of the repercussions of grief? If you handle it right, it seems to me, uh, you can go on with your life. Like my friend from New Jersey, she didn't get over it ever. And it really just really messed up her life. So the question is the importance of getting it right.
1: Yeah, I, I don't like that word, that there's a right, because that implies that there's a wrong way to do it. Grief is such a deep experience, and I think it's possible that if, if you're not moving through it, you may not be delving into it. Um, it, it may be too um, scary for you uh, yes. to to really plunge in. And, and I mean, it's something that you can titrate um you don't have to plunge all the way down and never come out because I think there's also that fear. You know, if I let myself go completely, I'm never going to come out. Um, It's as if there's a giant abyss in front of you and you're afraid that if you allow yourself to completely relax into the sadness, you're, you're going to drown in that abyss.
0: You said Um, you use the word titrate. Is that what you said? Yes.
1: Yes. I did use that word. I mean, well, titrate like a, like a dose. So you can, you can decide you know, you can feel a wave of grief coming on and you can say, you know, I can't prevent this and I don't think I need to prevent it. It'd be better for me to experience this. So I'm going to allow myself to completely fall apart for a period of time. I'm going to give myself a time limit, like 10 minutes on the clock. Here I go and you just let yourself go and you, you collapse on the floor. Maybe you cry and you scream and you kick your feet like a little kid having a temper tantrum or whatever you need to do, rocking back and forth and sobbing for about 10 minutes, and then when you get closer to the 10 minutes, you start to slow yourself down. You start to breathe deeply. You start to try to bring yourself out of it. And then at 10 minutes, you give yourself a big hug, congratulate yourself for a job well done. You just released a huge amount of emotion, pick yourself up off the floor, go splash some water on your face, make yourself a cup of tea. That's titration. You
0: You know, you just mentioned children i have three grandchildren and one little boy is always fearful of when he Mm -hmm. hears that somebody has died are there ways to help children five-year-olds absolutely Absolutely. is that how old he is yes
1: yeah he's coming to an awareness of impermanence and that's that's very scary for him um typically children under the age of seven when they hear about somebody dying they they might understand that they're not coming back but they they don't completely get that, and and it's not unusual for a child that age when somebody dies for them to say, "Well, I know, I know he's dead, but is he going to be here for Christmas?" Because um, they don't quite get the permanence yeah, yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. But um, I think that that children should be encouraged to explore their feelings, and they, you know, again, with children in particular, working with nonverbal ways can be very helpful. Um, they can, um, if they're very fearful about things that are happening externally, they you could you could give child a circle and ask them to draw the people that are important to them and the people that support them inside the circle so they can see that there are helpers in their lives. Um, there there are a lot of ways that they can be encouraged to express their fears. And they also can write to that person or draw a picture for that person who's who's died. You know, they So say their grandmother died and and they, you know, they wish that they could tell them something, you know, oh, you know, I, I got a new truck and I really wish I could tell my grandmother so they could draw a picture of that truck.
0: (laughs) Is there a way, Claudia, uh, to help prepare? Now, here I am, I'm 78 years old. I'm going to die sooner or later. I've got a five-year-old grandchild. Is this something I should be doing to help him previous to grief?
1: I don't know that you want to sit down and talk to him and say, you know, someday i someday, son, Ah. I'm (laughs) going to die. I think that would be more scary than anything else. I think, I think it's better to keep things in the here and now and in the present to let that child know how much you care about them. And, um, if you are in a position where you are ill and you know that you're dying, that might be a time to talk to them about how, how meaningful they are to your life and how, um, you hope they remember you in some ways and, you know, but certainly not now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that.
0: There's nothing. That is, there's nothing that really can be done.
1: No, but I also think. I also think another thing that's important is that if the word, if if the child expresses they're worried about people dying, to just ask them what they're worried about and and get get that child to talk about it. Don't don't brush it off. Make right. it make it okay to talk about. It gotcha. In a matter gotcha. of fact way, but ask the ch- let the child direct the conversation.
0: Okay, so you engage in something called transition counseling. What exactly is that?
1: Well, I think that's something that's very relevant right now, that I'm referring to the kind of losses that are more transitional than an actual death, like a job loss or I, I, my practice is in Hudson and there are many people who have second homes up here and then they decide that they don't wanna live in Brooklyn anymore so they, or in the city and they move up and they think, oh, this is gonna be great. I've moved up to my country house and then they're completely at a loss. They've lost all of their social activities. They're not connecting with new people. They're sort of not really sure what they're doing in their lives. And they sometimes that can trigger grief. And a lot of the time, those people have had losses in the past. So those are being triggered as well. Um, So that's what I mean by transition counseling, that those points in our lives where we're really undergoing a big change and um, we're finding ourselves having grief reactions to that.
0: Is that what you did? I mean, you lost your husband at a fairly early age. Did you move or were you already here?
1: No, I I was living in Stamfordville at the time in Dutchess County, and uh, I have a house there. And... I made a decision, my children were uh, 20, 17, and 14 at the time, and I didn't want to move. Um, I There was a certain point after a couple of years where I thought it would be wise to sell the house, but my children wouldn't hear of it, and I really felt that it was important for them to keep things um, as simple and as ordinary as possible and not to make too many changes until they had you know, managed to get out through college. So I didn't move out of that house until all my children were or graduated or, or, or well into college. Um, so that was a choice that I made. It was maybe not the best financial choice because I still have the house. <laughs> I just have it rented. Um, I can't, it does, doesn't seem to sell at this moment. So, um, but I, I'm, that was a choice that I made. Um, people say you shouldn't make major, major changes. Some people say in the first year, you know, that part of that is because your mind isn't working very well. So it's hard to know how to make the right decision. Um, For me, my focus was to try to figure out how to get myself through grief and to try to make sure that they stayed on the trajectories of their lives.
0: Claudia Kunin, so I guess the question is, do the circumstances of the death of the loved one affect the grieving process? What I mean by that is my father dropped dead. He did. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was an older guy. I don't remember exactly how old he was, but he was older. he was close to 80. And my mother said to me, well, you know, He had a cough and he went to the doctor and the doctor said it's just a cough and he dropped dead and i could sue the doctor she said but i'm not going to do that that's a fairly common thing to hear isn't it that somebody could sue or some feelings of anger it's
1: common feelings of anger for sure yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah and so somebody drops dead on the street as opposed to somebody drops dead lying next to a partner those are differences in the way in which this stuff happens does that affect the grieving process the circumstances of the death.
1: Well, the circumstances definitely have an effect on the grieving process. I don't, and for each person it's different, but for sure, you know, a sudden death probably creates a longer period of shock because it was so unexpected than um, somebody who dies after a long illness when there's a lot of, when you've been doing a lot of caregiving or you have an, you have a, a diagnosis, you know that this person is terminal. You have a little bit more time to, prepare and a little bit more time to engage in what we call anticipatory grief. However, there usually still will be some shock when that person dies. So it just, in in my experience, I don't think it lasts as long when there's been an illness for a period of time. Was your husband uh, sick? No, not at all.
0: He died of a heart attack. He
1: he died of a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. I, I left the room, I came back and he took his last breath.
0: It's just unbelievable. Uh, You know, I, I know that my parents, In those days, heart conditions were treated by putting a medicine of some kind under your tongue. I remember that. And I don't think that's the way we do it anymore. But one could almost see it coming if they wanted to see it coming. There's a question there somewhere.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about a person who has a heart condition and has been prescribed medication. They can feel that something's coming on. Yeah, with heart attacks, the kind of heart attack that my husband had is is called the widowmaker. And 75% of these first-time heart attacks are fatal. You know, in retrospect, when we when we look at the autopsy results and we see that he had been a lifelong smoker, cigarette smoker, had he, there had was. He,
0: and did you try to convince him not to
1: over and over again?
0: How does that figure into your grief process?
1: I have was pretty angry it? about it. I was angry. Yeah, you know, yeah. I feel, to me, it to me, it, it feels like it could have been avoided. And there there's another sort of um, useless thought, because I might say, well, why didn't you stop smoking? But he was the one who would have had to have done that. and. For whatever reason, he didn't. So, um, you know, who can say? I certainly wish it hadn't happened, and it did.
0: Well, so there is something called collective grief, and then there's personal grief. And what's Mm -hmm. the difference between the two of those?
1: Well, the collective grief is what I was speaking about before. That that is the the sense of all the grief that's out there in the world. All of you know when we look at the statistics. It's over this morning. It's over twenty one thousand people in, the, that have died in New York. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that's that's so, I mean, I can't even wrap my mind around that. And, you know, so when I think of that, I'm just filled with horror and with sadness for all of those people and all of those families. And um, I wish I could help them in some way and I can't. So that, the fact that I can't contributes to my own personal grief and what I'm feeling for all these other people that I've never even met is the collective grief.
0: Interesting. You know, I've been very privileged to be allowed to interview Governor Andrew Cuomo on a regular basis. point being that his relationship with his father is so compelling. I mean, the father really, Mario, really did set the standard for this kid's life. And not only did he compete with him, there's no question about that, but he also internalized what would Papa have done. I can see it all the time. And, you know, it is just fascinating that the grief process becomes part of our, what Freud might have called character, doesn't it?
1: Yes. And I think that what, what, we, what we call continuing bonds, which is the way in which we remain connected to those people who have, have passed, is, that's an expression of that. The fact that Andrew thinks about what his father would have done, and then he makes a decision about whether he wants to do it the same way or do it differently, but it's still connected to his father. And that's an example of the continuing bond that he has with Mario.
0: Yeah. You know, it can get kind of
1: complicated, can't it? Yes, it can. <laughs> when, when I'll it. give you, I'll give you a funny example because sure. I, when, when Jeez. Albie, Alby had very, um,
0: particular ways. Husband,
1: of do- yeah. Yes, yeah. he had very particular ways of doing things. And he had a particular way to, to light the wood stoves. And he would always get angry at me, because I did it very differently. I would just open up the the, the bottom of the stove and, you know, make the flames go really high. And, and he was very cautious in that regard. And he would claim that I was about to set the house on fire. So, right. so after he died, I was having a very hard time getting the wood stoves burning. And I felt very um, incompetent and upset with myself that I couldn't do it the way he had told me I had to do it. And at one point I filled the house with smoke. And um, at that moment, a friend of mine called and um, I was crying. She said, Claudia, what's wrong? I said, I can't make the fire. Albie said I had to do it like this and I can't get it going. And she said, Claudia, Albie doesn't get to have an opinion anymore. I, I caught my breath and I started to laugh because on the one hand, that was, that was so sad. And on the other hand, it completely freed me from having to do it any other way. I could do it my way. And I wasn't going to set the house on fire. And I didn't set the house on fire. And I was able to get the, f- the stoves lit after that.
0: Well, to go back to the Mario example, which is very personal with me because I had a show for maybe 18 years with Mario Cuomo. I remember then, listening to it. And then Andrew comes along and Andrew decides he's going to run for governor against Carl McCall, who had the nomination sewed up. He was the first African-American who would have had a chance at it. And I got furious. I said so on the radio, despite my relationship with Mario. And Mario got mad at me. He got really mad at me. I <laughs> so You had to do it, didn't you? And then Andrew gets elected governor, and Andrew doesn't come on to WAMC for eight years. That's a long time. And then one day, there's a knock on the window, and there's our brilliant young news director, Ian Pickus, and he's mouthing the words, Andrew wants to come on today for a half an hour. Well, he came on for a half an hour, and he came on for a half an hour for the next 50 weeks in a row. <laughs> and- <laughs> So something within that particular post-Mario death relationship did something. It may be the fact that he knew that Mario had trusted me for all of those years. I don't know. It's uh, all part of the grief process. Is it? I
1: think so. I think, you know, everybody grieves in their own way. And, and they, they sort of, how they foster relationships or stop relationships um, is affected by their grief as well. And, you know, obviously, Andrew might have taken that personally for you. And then there's a certain point... That sort of softened.
0: Yeah. Or he might have been thinking, which I think he does a lot, what would Mario have wanted me to do? Mm -hmm. It's interesting because Mario is so much a facet of his life. Now, you have kids, obviously, and you're a grief counselor. How have your kids gotten through all of this?
1: They've gotten through it amazingly well. And and I think that they certainly didn't look to me for being their grief counselor. And I wasn't at the time. I wasn't a counselor at the time. That was, it has never been my role. I've encouraged them to um, find their own path and to find their own way through um, their experiences. Um, all they're all different in how much they share with me, um, and uh, they are all they've all been very very successful in their lives. And I think I'm not sure if they would agree with me, but I think that the, a lot of the choices that they've made in their lives have to do with their father, and um, they uh, they keep him. I know that they keep him alive in their lives. They feel very connected to him.
0: I don't want to violate any confidences, but the way that you came to this show is that our very good friend, our mutual friend, Malcolm Nance, said, you got to get this lady on. She really knows what she's talking about. So my question to you is, how do you get your business?
1: So one of the prime ways I get business is that I have a listing with Psychology Today, and I get a lot of inquiries through that. So if you were to go online and look for grief counselor in Hudson, I would pop up. So people will then send me an email or give me a call. And then we'll, as I said before, we'll talk on the phone and see if if I'm right for them. If they'd like to come in for a session right now, I am still seeing people. I'm seeing them on video. I'm not seeing people physically at the moment. Uh And in fact, I'm not even going to my office. I'm seeing people from the corner of my sitting room. So that's one way. And then there are some uh, people will will tell people if somebody's grieving, somebody might know about me and they might say, Oh, you know, you should, you should give Claudia a call because she she helped me. Um, So that's a word of mouth referral. Uh, Some of the, Um, There are some doctors in town who recommend me, um, and then sometimes through my organization, I get referrals.
0: So I guess the question is, what happens if somebody comes to you, and as a grief counselor, you've been well-recommended, but they have, as you said, other things involved. Mm -hmm. Could be guilt, could be other things, and it doesn't work. Do they ever hold it against you?
1: Not usually, (laughs) <laughs> Not usually. I have an agreement with them from the very beginning that if other things, other issues arise that are would be better held by a licensed therapist, then we're going to talk about that, and I might recommend that they go see a licensed therapist. Sometimes people come to me and they are already seeing a therapist, right. so they might be seeing a therapist for other issues, and then they're coming to me for the grief. And in which case, we'll get a release so that we can share information if we need to, which we don't usually have to do that too much. but And then there have been a few occasions where it really seems very clear to me that they would be better helped by somebody else. And sometimes they, they can see that too. So then we just say, I wish them well, and I um, I encourage them to get the help from the person that they want to get it from.
0: Well, let me ask you this, Claudia. As long as we're talking about this, you're obviously a woman. Do you get more women or men, or do you get both? Number one. And number two, the thing's complicated. I mean, in other words, part of grief is you don't have a sexual partner anymore sometimes. And obviously, you being a female may have a different perspective than a male might have. Yes, but that doesn't
1: mean that I can't listen to their perspective. I mean, we're humans and we have. Um, urges and needs, and um, I don't know that the, it's all that different. I mean, I try to be very careful with how I express myself, but I also want to make it safe for them to speak about anything that they're coming up with. And and if you've lost your spouse, I mean, there's there it's a huge problem, and there's actually a name for it. It's called skin hunger. You just miss that touch so much, and you know it, it's important to respect and honor that, and and to try to help your client. I try to help my client figure out ways to deal with that, you know, on their own. But in terms of of, uh, male, female in my practice, it's typically thought that more women seek grief counseling than men. But I haven't found that to be the case. I have a pretty even balance of men
0: and women. Interesting. Interesting. And is there any definitive thing you can tell us about the way in which males and females may approach grief?
1: I get asked this question a lot. There's some thought that men are more doers and women are more feelers. And that I haven't found that to be true. I think that um, we all have that those differences within us where we um, engage in feeling and we engage in doing. And, and there's actually a, a grief model called the dual process model which is where we go back and forth between the loss orientation in which we're, we're mourning and longing and wishing for that person and then experiencing the grief and trying to figure out what it means in our lives. And then there's the doing where we have to go to work and we have to get up and take a shower and we have to make dinner and we have to talk to our friends. And we actually fluctuate back and forth. Um, the, the originators of the model called it oscillation, where we go back and forth between doing and feeling. And um, you know, certainly some people are more, you know, active grievers. Ken Doka, psychologist, calls that, calls that instrumental grief versus intuitive grief. And some people are pretty balanced. Um, I go back and forth. I, I can do a lot of things with grief, but I also am comfortable with just feeling it. And I, I have. Um, Male clients who are more feelers than doers, and I, and I have women who are more active in keeping busy. So it, it, I don't know that it's so relevant to gender.
0: Huh. So if somebody is retired as opposed to still working, is that relevant to grief?
1: I think it depends. I mean, they may have more time to engage with it, which could be good, but it also could be problematic because they don't have enough to do to keep them, them their mind occupied when they need to sort of put grief aside everybody's unique, Alan, and I like to just meet each person where they are and help them figure out their own process.
0: So I know people who have been married for a long, long time and who, you know, lose a spouse and then they run from it. Mm-hmm. You don't see any mm-hmm. real recognition of the former spouse. They get remarried and that kind of thing. What do you make of that?
1: I think it's a common thing that people do. And, and I think they Oftentimes, typically men do that faster than women do. That's been proven. I think that some men, especially older men who have been married for a very long time, are very uncomfortable with being alone. They don't know how to do it. Whereas women are more comfortable staying in their emotional field, so they maybe are not so quick to repartner if they choose to. Um, Also, if if a person has been, male or female, if a person has been a very long-term caregiver for someone who's been ill for many, many years, It's very hard for them to consider the possibility of stepping into that again um, now that they're older and their potential new partner will also be older and then they might be setting themselves up for another loss and another caregiving situation. And then some people really embrace that after a while. You know, I, I knew that I would want to be in a relationship again and I eventually engaged and, you know, tried to put myself out there and I got married again five years ago.
0: Wow. That's a very interesting facet of all of this. I've often wondered when a spouse tells a spouse, "You know, when you die, I'm going to find somebody else." <laughs> I mean, it happens. Just so you know, is that a wise thing to do?
1: Uh, it doesn't sound very nice. I've actually heard. I've actually heard it more the other way that that somebody, a spouse who knows that he or she is dying, might encourage their spouse to find somebody else. I want you to find somebody else after I'm gone, and. Uh, mm. In fact, I had a client recently whose wife um, was ill for 10 years, and she was actively seeking another partner for him. She'd be like, Mm -hmm. well, what about her? You know, what about that person? And he would say, no, no, don't. You know, I don't want to talk about it. You know, you're here. I want to be with you. Um, And he he did start dating after she died. But he was also very actively grieving. I mean, that's another thing that, that isn't well understood. And people... People who see a person dating early on or repartnering what you might consider is very soon after a loss, you don't really have insight into what that person's experience is. And just because they have decided to put themselves out there and try to be with other people and try to have a new relationship does not mean that they're not grieving. As a matter of fact, they may be holding both of those things and having a hard time with the dichotomy of being actively grieving and falling in love at the same time.
0: Does the new spouse have in your mind an obligation to help the surviving spouse, you know, with their grief?
1: I don't know that they have an obligation, but they certainly should should be understanding. Because mm-hmm. if they're not, and if they think that you shouldn't ever mention that person again, then you
0: probably shouldn't be in that relationship. Interesting, interesting. Well, this has been fascinating. We've been talking with Claudia Kunin, a creative grief counselor, certified thanatologist and author of Shattered by Grief, Picking Up the Pieces to Become Whole Again, And she has a new book being released July 1st called The Creative Toolkit. You can find out more at thekarunaproject.com. That's karunaproject.com. Claudia, this has been terrific. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We so appreciate it. Thank you, Alan.
1: Been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series, or to order a physical copy, call 1 800 323 9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.